Back when I was in the business world, I had a co-worker named Frank who was very full of himself. And when new employees joined the company and they got to know Frank, it was amazing how very quickly, in just the first few sentences of establishing a new relationship with this new colleague, he could make sure that you knew that he drove a very high-end expensive sports car. And that the vacations he always took were to expensive ritzy resorts. And he would find an excuse to ostentatiously check his wristwatch and make sure that you knew that it was a Rolex. Frank was just full of himself, and he never wanted to ask about you because for Frank, life was all about him. As you might imagine, spending a lot of time with a person that self-centered wasn't very pleasant. He wasn't a really great guy to work with. And you and I have all known people like that who are self-promoters. Those men and women who just can't seem to talking at you about how awesome they are. And, and most often when we see that in someone, it shows up as outright arrogance as it did with Frank. Sometimes, though, self-promotion shows up under the guise of false humility. My friend Brian was an associate pastor in a church, and the lead pastor was a very learned man who had actually earned three doctoral degrees. Now, that's pretty impressive. Unfortunately for this pastor, he seemed to view that accomplishment mostly because of the bragging rights that he felt that it gave him. And he always wanted to impress you with his level of education, but he would do so in these very interesting ways. For example, Brian told me about standing in the lobby of the church one day and the lead pastor's welcoming people. Here comes a, a new couple into church and he engages them in conversation and he says something like this. You know, as you get to know me, you'll find that I'm really a very regular guy, a very down-to-earth person, and I hardly ever make a big deal out of the fact that I have three doctoral degrees. <laughs> well, well, guess what? He just did, didn't he? False humility. Isn't that interesting? Now, those two men, Frank and this lead pastor, in different ways, were self-promoters. And I hope you and I never become self-promoters to the degree of either of those men that I've mentioned. Yet the reality is, in, in various ways and at various times, you and I can fall into the trap of becoming very self-centered. And we can become more self-centered than Jesus-centered. And as followers of Christ, ultimately, our goal is not to draw people to ourselves, but to point people through us to Jesus. This morning in the Bible, we're going to meet a man named Simon, who is an extreme example of self-promotion. And his story reminds us not to start down the slippery slope of arrogance and greed. And so let's take a look together at the book of Acts, chapter 8, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Boy, that's a humble statement, isn't it? Next. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with 
his magic. Now, now this story takes place in Samaria, where we read here in the Bible passage that Simon practices magic. And that phrase doesn't mean what we probably think it means because Simon wasn't remotely like the modern magicians of today. People like David Copperfield or Penn and Teller that we might have seen. Today's magicians are entertainers. But in biblical times, if you practiced magic, you were a sorcerer. And sorcery even was a profession. And if you went into that line of work, you were able to cast spells and perform incantations and even do miracles. But that power didn't come from God. It came from the forces of darkness because you were in league with evil spirits. You were engaging in what we would call black magic. And that's why in Scripture... This activity never is viewed as harmless entertainment. It's always viewed as evil. And if you had that ability to perform this magic, it was all about you. If sorcery was your profession, you weren't really interested in doing these amazing things in order to help people. Your goal was to dazzle the crowd so they would give you money. And Simon as we just read, appears to be particularly good at this. We're not told the specifics of what he's doing, but whatever it is, it's obviously very impressive. And when he goes into action, people think he's displaying the power of God. And oh, does he love the adulation. And and let's face it, when you go around telling people how great you are, (laughs) then you really have no desire to bless them. You want to impress them. And so we have a picture here of Simon as an arrogant and self-centered man whose only motivation is to attract people to himself and make a buck. Now, I've never known a sorcerer. I'll, I'll bet you probably haven't known a sorcerer either. But we've all known self promoters of various kinds, like the two men I mentioned at the start of the message. And the question we always need to ask is this, is it possible for us to ever fall into that trap? And and yes, it is. Though usually for us, the problem of self-promotion hits at a much different level than we see with Simon. Hopefully you and I don't go around claiming to be great, but we still can become overly focused on impressing other people. And the usual underlying reason for doing so, for you, for me, for Simon, is to build up our sense of self-worth. And this is a foundational problem of character because you and I don't need to impress other people to have value as human beings. We need to realize that our sense of self-worth doesn't come from our profession or how much money we make or the possessions we own or what particular skills we've been given by God. Our self-worth does not come from what we do, but who we are. Your self-worth, my self-worth, comes from the fact that we are human beings made in the image of God. And we are children 
of that God. And he's our heavenly father. And he loves us so much that he allowed his son to die for our sins so that we can live in peace with our creator. And that's all the self-worth we should need. That's what gives us value. But Simon and people like him, they have a flawed character. And Simon is particularly flawed, and so his self-worth is shaped by his need for attention and from the income that results from dazzling the crowd. And because of these magical powers from the source of evil, Simon is the best show in Samaria. But all that changes when a traveling evangelist named Philip comes to town and people start to learn about real power. The power of God to transform people. Let's continue on. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, Philip shows up earlier in the book of Acts, and he's revealed as a man of character and a man of faith and a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. And God gifts him with the ability to preach boldly about Jesus and also to perform miracles. And we may wonder, why is it that we see so many miracles in the Bible and we may not see so many of them today? One of the primary reasons is because of the prevalence of black magic in biblical times. If evil spirits are helping people like Simon to perform miracles, then God wants to demonstrate that he's the author of even greater miracles. Here's the most important thing to realize, though. For God, miracles are not a show, and miracles are not the goal. The primary purpose of a miracle authored by God is to validate the truth of the message of Jesus. And so Simon is a self-promoter. Philip, by contrast, is a Jesus promoter. People listen to Simon because Simon is amazing. While people listen to Philip because the good news about Jesus is amazing. You see, there's a world of difference between Simon's self-centered showmanship and Philip's Jesus-centered ministry. And many of the Samaritans, thankfully, see the tangible difference between these two men. And they realize that the real power in this world is not the power behind the showy things that Simon does. The real miracle is that God came to earth in the form of Jesus. And that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to demonstrate the power of Almighty God and to transform humanity. And so in response to Philip's preaching, many Samaritans repent of their sinful attitudes and actions and they are baptized. 
And most amazingly of all, given that he's in league with evil, even Simon repents and is baptized. He becomes, in that moment, a believer. And we need to see how dramatic this is. This evil sorcerer has publicly proclaimed that he wants to be a Christian. And it means that he's now at at a huge critical turning point in his life. He's indicated that he wants to follow the path of Jesus and no longer be in league with the forces of darkness. And yet, one of the challenges faced by every new believer, every new believer needs to be able to say, I'm willing to turn my back on my old way of life. Scripture tells us that God makes us new in Jesus, but we have to embrace that and allow the Holy Spirit to infuse our minds and our hearts and our souls so we can live it out. And we have to submit to God and and allow Him to reshape our character. But from the very beginning, Simon struggles with that because as we see, he's more focused on Philip's miracles on Philip's message and Philip's ministry. And he tags along with Philip not to hear him preach more about Jesus and to learn more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He follows him along and it seems like he's sort of taking a, a professional interest in the miracles. It's like he's doing professional research. And Simon becomes consumed by Philip's miracles rather than by saying, you know, I professed faith in Jesus. I need to start learning how to live as a follower of Jesus. And because he focuses on the wrong things, Simon's new faith is sorely tested. And as we will see, he is not up to the test. His pride and his ego have not been surrendered to Jesus. And so greed is going to win out. And tragically, he will continue in his well-established path, his path of living as a self-promoter, as he becomes even more entranced with the power to do miracles. Let's look what happens next. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they only had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent there of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now now prior to this, 
as we saw, Simon has watched Philip perform miracles, but now when the apostles arrive, he sees something entirely new. These men who are called apostles of Jesus lay their hands on the Samaritan Christians and they pray over them, and these new believers receive an incredible gift. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within them. Simon's never seen anything like that. And as a guy who's entranced by miracles, oh, is he in awe. And yet his response to what he sees is immoral and ungodly. And it results from having a deeply flawed character. Now, we're going to take a little side trip here. We're going to leave Simon to the side for just a moment. We'll come back and deal with him in a minute. What we need to do is understand what God is doing in the lives of these new Samaritan believers and the apostles. I don't know if you noticed this as I was reading this passage, but something really unusual is happening here. According to Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, people typically receive the Holy Spirit when they believe in Jesus and they repent of their sins and they're immersed, they're baptized. That's how people normally get the Holy Spirit. But on this occasion, God makes an exception. The Samaritans respond in faith to the message of Jesus. They repent, they're baptized, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit. So why would that be? Why would God make an exception here? And the reason is powerful. It's because of the checkered history between the Jews and the Samaritans. These two groups don't like each other. They don't have a lot of respect for each other. And in particular, the Jews view the Samaritans as culturally and spiritually inferior. And that attitude, because it's normal for Jews, is an attitude that would still be understood and embraced as normal by the Jewish Christians who are the core of this new entity called the church. And the fact that Philip even is preaching about Jesus to the Samaritans is a huge cross-cultural step. I have no doubts that some Jewish Christians probably think that this is a waste of time. Why are we preaching about Jesus, our Messiah, to those disgusting Samaritans? But then, the Samaritans enthusiastically respond They love what Philip tells them about Jesus and they decide they want to live as followers of Jesus. They're transformed. And word about that gets back to church headquarters in Jerusalem so the apostles just have to send a a couple of guys over there to check things out. And when Peter and John arrive, they discover that what they heard is actually true. The Samaritans sincerely repented. They were baptized into the faith. But something odd happened. The Holy Spirit didn't show up. Now the apostles know that God has promised the Holy Spirit to every new believer, so what should these apostles do? These apostles lay their hands on the Samaritans. Jewish Christians touched Samaritans. Ooh, they touched each other. 
If you were a faithful Jew, you didn't do that. But these Jewish Christian apostles, their characters have started to be changed and reshaped by Jesus. And they know that these Samaritans have responded in faith to the gospel. They want them to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So they lay their hands on them and they pray over them and they ask God to bless these new believers, which means they're praying for the Samaritan Christians to become their spiritual equals. And prior to that, Jews never would have accepted Samaritans as spiritual equals. So they pray, they touch them, God fills these new believers with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes. What happens in this moment is revolutionary. And so I believe that God arranges this exception to break down centuries of cultural and spiritual hostility between Jews and Samaritans and to create unity in the church of Jesus Christ. And he wants everyone to know that through Jesus, Jews and Samaritans can become one family. And so this becomes a powerful and transforming moment for everyone who is there, who experiences this and witnesses this. Except for one guy who doesn't get it. And that's Simon. Simon is unable to see the bigger picture of what God is doing here because all he can see is the miracle. And Simon wants that power for himself. And he's not motivated by a desire to serve and bless others. He just wants something new to add to his repertoire so he can wow the crowd even more and put more money in his pocket. Because that's what sorcerers do. Simon is driven by pride, by greed. And so he tries to buy this spiritual ability from the apostles. Now, now, that act of trying to purchase a spiritual gift, that probably strikes us as very odd, but it actually was, was common at that time in history for sorcerers to purchase dark secrets from each other. And they would buy and sell each other incantations and spells. So Simon's offer, that's just a typical business transaction for him. And what's tragic is that he has such a humanistic view of things that he doesn't realize God is working through the apostles because of their humble faith. Simon thinks... The supernatural power belongs to them. And so we can get it for a price. It's really important for us to understand what's happened to Simon here. Yes, he's professed faith in Jesus, but he's not submitted himself to God. He's not allowed God to begin the work of changing his flawed character. And so, yes, he believed and he was baptized, but his mind and heart are still firmly enmeshed in his old way of life. And you cannot be a faithful disciple of Jesus if you cling to the past. Peter sees all this, and he lets Simon know in no uncertain terms that he's chosen the wrong path. And, and, and Peter does not confront 
Simon gently. <laughs> Look at what he says to him. Keep your money. It's of no use in this situation. Your heart is not right with God. You are wicked. You are in bondage to iniquity, which is another word for sin. And you are in the gall of bitterness. We'll talk more about that phrase in a minute. But, but I mean, what Peter says here is a horrible indictment of Simon's attitude and actions. And when we just listen to that list, it sounds horrible, but you know, when we dig into those criticisms a bit deeper, we find out that it's even worse than it sounds. You see, wickedness is not just when we've done something bad. If we're wicked, it means that a particular sin has become so ingrained in our life that we no longer want to change it. In fact, we're in such bondage to it that we've normalized it. So instead of rejecting it, we embrace it, we affirm it, and we even want God to endorse it as well. That's Simon's spiritual condition. So Peter tells him, unless you repent, you're in deep trouble. And this is very clear in the original Greek text of verse 20. Because here's what Peter literally says in this Bible text to Simon. He says, to hell with you and your money. Whoa. Now in our culture, that kind of phrase, we hear that as profanity. But it's not profanity in that culture. You know what it is? It's a statement of judgment from an apostle of Jesus Christ. strong words. And if that's not enough, Peter also says Simon is in the gall of bitterness. Now that's a very odd phrase, it's a very unusual term, and you know what? It's derived from the Greek word for liver bile. <laughs> that's pretty disgusting. And in that day, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a person whose character is rotten. And it means you're filled with bitter, poisonous fruit in your mind, in your heart, and your soul. And not only are you deeply infected with it, you infect those around you. Simon is not in a good place with God. And in face of that harsh reality, his only hope is to throw himself upon God's mercy. And that opportunity is available because Peter urges him to repent and to receive God's forgiveness. Yet we have no evidence that Simon ever does repent. He asks Peter to pray for him, but we don't see Simon falling to his knees to repent and pray. I mean, if an apostle of Jesus Christ made that indictment of you or I, what would we do? I hope we would fall to our knees and say, oh God, have mercy on me. But Simon doesn't do that. And furthermore, his request to Peter doesn't really sound like someone who's sorrowful and eager to get right with God, it sounds like someone who just wants to get out of trouble. And so Simon, in response to Peter's words of judgment, he's at another crossroads. He has to decide, which way will I go? 
but it's going to be difficult and perhaps even impossible to choose the right path, excuse me, because his character is so shaped by evil. And the way this story ends in the Bible, it's not hopeful. And we wonder what will happen to Simon from this day forward. Scripture doesn't tell us, but church history does. We actually do know what happens to Simon. And we know because of a man named Justin Martyr, who was a leader in the early church shortly after the age of the apostles. Justin Martyr was from Samaria, the same place as Simon, and he was very familiar with Simon's life story. And in his writings, he tells us that Simon continued to practice black magic throughout the rest of his life. And so sadly, tragically, for Simon, personal profit was more important than repentance. Arrogance and greed conquered humility. Self-promotion won out over self-sacrifice. And so this sorcerer, who for a moment professed faith in Jesus, he walks away from God and he resumes his old life. And we might find ourselves wondering, how how could this happen to a repentant, baptized believer? Well, Jesus himself gives us the answer in a story known as the parable of the sower, which we find in the book of Matthew chapter 13 and the book of Mark chapter 4. And in that parable, Jesus uses an agricultural metaphor to describe four different ways that people respond to God's truth when it is sowed like seed into their hearts. And when people hear and receive God's truth like a seed, some respond well and others don't. And how we respond depends on our character and the condition of our hearts. And Jesus says that some people respond, they respond to God like a seed that is sown among the thorns. Here's what Jesus says. As for what was sown among the thorns, that's the seed that represents God's truth, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so I think Simon falls into the category of someone whose heart and character is thorny soil. His desire for wealth and adulation and power chokes off the fruitfulness of God's word. And so the truth never fully takes root and he turns his back on Jesus. And So the moral of this story is that when we are choosing our path in life, character counts for so much. And at key moments in this story, we see that Simon's character is deficient. And I pray that what we see in this man would never, ever be true for us. Simon truly was in the gall of bitterness. 
In fact, his character was so rotten and his actions so despicable that his name even lived on after his death as a legacy of wickedness. It showed up in two different ways. In the, in the early centuries, there was an ancient cult called the Simonians. And these were people who practiced magic and incantations, and they pointed to Simon as the founder of their belief system. And thankfully, the church took a strong stand against them, and that group ceased to exist around 300 AD. But then Simon's legacy reared its head again in the Middle Ages. If you've ever studied the Middle Ages, you know it was a time when the church had tremendous cultural influence, but unfortunately, that cultural influence often was misused. And church officials had great stature and power and influence. And sometimes then, greedy leaders would buy and sell their church positions to others. Can you imagine becoming a leader in the church of Jesus Christ by paying for it? I, I, I think that's disgusting. But thankfully, God raised up men and women who spoke out against that practice, and they found a biblical basis for their criticism here in Acts chapter 8. And they accused these people who were buying and selling church offices, they accused them of simony. Simony was the sin of trying to buy something that only God can give. Simon, he had choices in life. And he could have chosen the path of Jesus. But instead he chose the path of darkness and he left behind a, a tragic and destructive legacy and it all was the result of a deeply flawed character that resulted in the prideful pursuit of self-promotion. And what saddens me is that we don't have to look too hard to find modern examples of people who seem to be following in Simon's footsteps, not necessarily sorcery and evil, though that still does exist in the world. I'm talking about people who just want to be self-promoters. And we find it both inside and outside the church. When you visit the website of a church I know, you go to their home page, and the biggest thing on that page is a button that says, click here, and it takes you to the pastor's personal website where he sells his book, books and preaching DVDs at a very nice profit. I find myself wondering, does he think the ministry of his church exists to line his pocket? Is that what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about? Is he drawing people into his church community or is he drawing people to himself? I know of another church that had a special baptism Sunday. This was a very large church and so they had scores of baptisms that day which is really cool and they had a photographer there who took pictures of each baptism and then they made a memorial photo book showing all the people who'd been baptized. I thought that was a really cool idea except on the front cover of the book was a picture of the pastor. Nothing else, just the pastor. And I found myself wondering, was he calling people to Jesus? Inviting people to the foot of the cross and a life of discipleship? Or was he calling people to himself? Who was this about? Was it about Jesus or was it about him? 
I think of the businessman I know who, who prayed for God to make him successful so he could take better care of his family, and God answered those prayers abundantly, but then that man no longer had time for God or for the church. And that's because every weekend he was on the road speaking at seminars about how to become successful. And he was paid big bucks for those speaking engagements. And in his seminars and workshops, he never once gave any credit to God for the blessings that God had bestowed on him. It was all about him. Self-promotion. Now, now those are obvious examples, but, but there are a lot more subtle temptations that can come your way and mine. For example, you've gotten to know me a bit. I think you know that I love the Bible. I love teaching and sharing God's truth. But my personal temptation is I want to be the Bible answer man. I want to be the guy that has the answer to all the questions and solve everybody's problems. But if I always insert myself into a situation, I might get in the way of what God wants to do. Julie and I once were in a small group and one of the guys in the group was working through an issue and he brought it up for discussion and when he mentioned his particular thing that he was struggling with, I was very excited because I had the right answer and I knew exactly what he should do and I couldn't wait to tell him because then I could help him and he'd think I'm pretty awesome and as I opened my mouth, the Holy Spirit seared these words into my brain. Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) And so I didn't say anything. And our group listened, and we prayed for him. And we came back next week, and he mentioned the same issue, and I felt like I wanted to talk again. And this went on for several weeks. And here's what I felt like over time God said to me. Not, Not audibly, I don't hear God speak, but he puts these thoughts in my head. And I felt like God was saying, Bruce, it's not about you. You don't need to insert yourself into this situation. Just listen, encourage, pray, and let me do my work in my timing, in my way. So that's what I did. And after seven weeks of this, this guy in the group discovered the answer as a result of his own times of prayer, as a result of searching the scriptures for himself. And I think that was so much more powerful in his life than if on week one I had just blurted out the answer and said, here's what you should do. And so here's a question I want to leave you with. Are there any areas of life where you feel inclined or tempted to make yourself the center of attention? Do you find yourself sometimes bragging about yourself in in subtle ways to call attention to yourself? Do you sometimes practice false humility? Brothers and sisters, let's never forget where our self-worth comes from. It doesn't come from what we do. It comes from who we are are. We do not need to push ourselves to the front because the life of faith is not about being a self-promoter. 
It's about being a Jesus promoter and pointing people to him because he is the one who reshapes our character and helps us experience the best that God has for each of us. Would you please pray with me? Father God, I pray that you'd help us to avoid the trap of self-promotion that sabotaged Simon and caused him to turn his back on you. And please help us to keep our own lives in proper perspective, remembering always that, <clears throat> that the goal never is to draw people to us. The goal is to influence people to Jesus. Because the real meaning of life isn't found in us. It's not found in what we do. The real meaning of life comes when we understand who you are and how you want to bless us and change us and form our character so that we can be people more like Jesus. Father, help us to ponder this biblical story today. May you just cause us to revisit it throughout this week. May we see, Father, areas of life where we might have weakness and maybe be tempted to become self-promoters like Simon. And may we trust in your strength that we would not ever head down that path, but that we would just humbly follow Jesus and live by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.